Let's open our Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah has three chapters. Haggai has two. And I would like to be able to get through both of them. I think we can. As we look at Zephaniah, just a little bit of background here. Hezekiah would have been his great-great-grandfather. Zephaniah would have uh, prophesied during the days of the reign of Josiah, uh, which was a period of a time they had they had a revival. It was really short-lived. It was was done a long one. Uh, Zephaniah knew something of of the reign of Amnon, uh, an evil king. I'm going to go back and lay a little remind you a little bit about Manasseh, who was probably the worst of the kings. And he saw that that judgment was coming upon his nation and upon his people. And his message was a very, very harsh one. So Zephaniah, his roots, his great-great-granddaddy is King Hezekiah. So just in background, why don't we turn back to Isaiah 38. And this would have been during the time of Isaiah's prophecy. This would be now after the miraculous intervention where the Lord um, intercedes on behalf of uh, uh, chapter 38, verse 1. And um, let me preface what we're going to say here with um, being careful what we pray for and not adding thy will be done to the end of the sentence. Um, He had just... Let's pick it up in verse so 38, verse 1. And we're, we're going here to connect the dots between Zephaniah and his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah, who was a godly king. Now in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, remember how I walked before you in truth. I had a loyal heart. I have done what, you, what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord God, the God of your father David, I've heard your prayers. I've seen your tears, and I'm going to add 15 years to your life. So the Lord was going to call him home. Um, If he would have seen what Paul would have seen when he saw heaven, he would would have said, let's get it on, let's do it. it. (laughs) A lot better there than it is here, so let's just do this thing. But instead, there's this human tendency that we have. Um, David calls it the valley of the shadow of death uh, because we've never been there, never experienced it. And human nature is one to do everything in your power. Lucifer understood this when he was testing Job, and he couldn't get through. And he says, just let me at him. And he said, skin for skin. A man will do anything to save his skin. So just let me at him, and he'll curse you to your face. Wait and see. He says, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And he passed the test. And uh, basically, when it was all done and over with, Job said, naked I came, naked I go. Praise the Lord. What a great attitude. I mean, how do you keep a guy like that down? You know, and, um, but, you know, 
Our enemy has been studying human nature and mankind uh, for 6,000 years now. And the Bible tells us he was made in perfect wisdom. So if he, if you think he doesn't know your Achilles heel, if you know what I mean, he does. And he'll, he'll hit you when you're down, and he'll hit you when you're hungry, as in the case with the Lord. He came to him after the 40 days of fasting, remember? That's the temptation. Your God, just make these stones into bread. And it was, that was a genuine temptation, because the Lord hungered after that period of time. Here, human nature kicks in, and the Lord tells him, set your house in order. I'm going to bring you home. But instead of saying, praise the Lord, I'll set my house in order, get things right, and, uh, and then we can go. Um, he reminds the Lord all that he's done in serving the Lord. And he turns, you know, he's, he's has a pity party going on here. He turns his back and um, turned his face towards the wall. And um, the Lord heard his prayer. And he, he sends um, Isaiah back to him, says, the Lord's heard your prayer. I'm going to give you 15 more years. Well, when you look, I'm not going to get into all of it, but if you look what happened from this moment on, where he could have died, he could have went home, he could have went to heaven. He didn't. Instead, he stuck around for 15 more years. And it was during that period of time that two major things happened and one of them was that um, he allowed um, the Babylonians heard that uh, he had gotten better, so they um, send um, a bunch of people over to say, gee, we're glad you're doing well, but they came from Babylon. And after they had left, Isaiah says to them, well, what do they want? And they, they just came to say they're glad I'm feeling better. And I said, what did you show them? And he says, what, what do you mean, what did I show him? He said, I showed him everything, including all the treasures in verse, chapter 39, verse um, 4. What have you seen in the house? And they said, well, they've seen all my treasures. And then he prophesies to him. He says, behold, the days are coming when the Babylonians are going to come and nothing is going to be left. Then Hezekiah said to the word of the Lord, which you have spoken, verse 8, well, it's good, because at least it's not going to happen in my time. <laughs> this guy couldn't care less about what was going to happen later on down the road. The other thing that happened is he had a son that was born whose name was Manasseh. So here you have a good king, and he could have gone home, and uh, the Babylonians never would have came down to wish him well. Manasseh would have never been born. And so now you have two kings between Hezekiah, and now we're up to uh, Zephaniah, who is part of the royal family. And we have probably the worst of all the kings was Manasseh, a terrible king. And so he drove Israel into such carnality that judgment now is going to come. All right, let's go back to Zephaniah with a little bit of who he was and his heritage. Um, as we look at this, I'm going to break it down for you. And because <clears throat> it all flows together, 
Let me just give you the different sections. In verses 1 through 3, what we have in Zephaniah, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday, double prophecies. And what we're going to have here is a double prophecy. Part of it is going to pertain to the great tribulation, which is yet future for you and I. It is going to be a judgment upon the entire world, not just a partial. And the other side of it is because of their sins. And then in chapters 2, we're going to go to the surrounding nations because they are also into idolatry. But universal judgment, verses 1 through 3. And then judgment just upon Judah, if you're taking notes from chapter 1, verse 4, uh, through um, 2, verse 3. And then beginning with verse 4 of chapter 2, we have judgment on the surrounding nations, um, Philistia to the west, and... um, Ethiopia to the south, Assyria to the north. So we have those in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, is going to be a specific judgment on Jerusalem. Verses 8 and 9, is a, uh, uh, they're going to go from judgment and cleansing uh, to, to all the, the nations. And then finally, from 3 to the end of the chapter, Uh, We look into the future. Here's a pattern that you need to notice that almost without exception, when the Lord talks about discipline, that at the end of the chapter, he usually talks about the millennial kingdom that's going to come. And such is going to be the case in our study in the book of Zephaniah. So there's two major divisions, if you're taking notes. Chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 8 The judgment of the day of the Lord is a double prophecy. Part of it is yet to happen because it includes the whole world, but the other part of it here is that it's a local judgment also. It's going to pertain not just to Judah and Jerusalem, but to Philistia, uh, Assyria, and um, the surrounding nations. Um, Ammon, I believe, is mentioned here, Ashkelon. So with that, um, verses 9 through 20 is the salvation of the the day of the Lord. So it starts out heavy. It's a very heavy word that has to be given. People don't like um, words of condemnation and judgment, but yet here the Lord sends his prophets. Even in the New Testament, the Lord commenting upon the ministry of the prophets, he said, which of the prophets didn't you kill? You know, you didn't like their message. You didn't believe what they had to say. Uh, And yet it's always mixed with God's grace and hope that even though they're going to go through this terrible period of time, there's light at the end of the tunnel because the kingdom eventually is going to be established. Verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. So he is ministering during a time Josiah was one of the best kings that Israel had. And there is revival going on. But it's short-lived, 
And um, it doesn't last for long. And there's a whole study that we could talk about here, how people start out good with the Lord. There's a revival that takes place. And then they get caught up in the cares and riches of this world. They don't bring any fruit to perfection. Everything that the Lord had for them, they're probably on plan B instead of plan A. And it's, again, human nature. And one of the things that I liked about what the Lord said, it was his routine to, or his ritual, or his routine to be in the synagogue. He said it was in the synagogue, which was his routine. And something that our generation has got away from is the routine of like Wednesday night Bible studies, prayer meetings on Saturday mornings, and, well, Sunday is the highlight of the week. And we've that should be the priority. But as time goes on, you get busy, uh, you get wealthy, you get a lot of things that could challenge um, seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a good place for an amen, whether you want to say it or not. <laughs> we know the scriptures are clear. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Where's your heart at? Well, give me your time schedule and I'll tell you exactly where your heart's at. And um, that can be convicting to everybody sitting here, including the guy behind the pulpit. So he'll say, whenever I do this, three come back at me. So don't think I'm getting off on this one. For I will utterly consume all things from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. So my title in verses 1 through 3 is a judgment of the whole world. And we know when we get to the bold judgments that it says every living thing in the sea died. And now here's a reference to it here. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, I like to call the third judgments. When that hits, only a third of the creatures in the sea die. Only a third of the green grass is burnt up. Only a third of the pure water is, is polluted. But here is um, something that is yet future. Now, um, cause and effect. Um, because God is righteous, um, then he upholds the law. And again, the simplest way to identify this is if you get a speeding ticket and you're doing 75 and a 25, you're busted, period. And you you can say, gee, uh, my foot must have been stuck to the accelerator or I had this dentist appointment that I was going to be late for. And, you know, the officer's sitting there looking at you like, you can talk all you want to, but you're getting a ticket. Why? Because you're 50 miles an hour over the speed limit. You can argue it in court, but it's not going to do you any good. That'll be $170, three points off. What do you call that? Well, we call it justice. Because if everybody went 75 miles an hour and 25, a lot of more people would be dead. There's a good reason for the law. There's a reason Paul says in the New Testament that if the law didn't come, then I wouldn't even know that it was wrong for me to covet. But when the law came and it says, thou shalt not steal, it made me a stealer. 
And when it says I should not bear false witness and I lie about something, all of a sudden I'm a liar and I'm guilty. Why? Because the law says so. So they have broken God's statutes. And justice can only mean judgment. So we read in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. Uh, The name of the idolatrous priest with the pagan priest, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milak, uh, Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. As Christians, we simply say it was a person who walked with the Lord for a season, but now he's backslidden and um, is no longer walking with the Lord. You've heard that terminology. That should put a good, healthy fear of the Lord in our hearts. And all the more reason. In the New Testament, we're said, it tells us, Paul says, as you see the day approaching, then don't forsake the, the assembling of yourselves together as you see the day approaching. Simple question, do we see the day approaching? Answer is yes. So what's our instruction? Um, not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But unfortunately, the thing that I think that holds the church together is primarily Acts chapter 2, verse 42, uh, the apostles' doctrine, prayer, communion, and fellowship. And the, the most important part there is the apostles' doctrine or the teaching of the word. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, in season, and out of season. I think the glue that keeps the true church together is the word of God and being in the word of God. And then, of course, fellowship and then communion. And we need those things because of our own human tendencies. We'd be off wandering around doing our own thing. And um, it it keeps us in, in check. So having that as a pattern of life and setting your priorities on what's most important. Well, what does the Bible say is most important? Seeking first the kingdom. All right, practically, how do I do that in 2017? With my schedule. Dwight, if you knew my schedule, you wouldn't be talking like you're talking. I don't care what your schedule is. Your priorities, you decide what your priorities are. And uh, the ball's in your court. And I'm especially talking to the dads right now and the men. Uh, who are supposed to be setting the tone and example. Not, not that the woman can't, but it really falls on dad's, dad's shoulders. Verse 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guest, and it shall be... In the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that will punish the princes of the king's children. And as such as are clothed with foreign apparel, in the same day I'll punish all those who leap over their threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate and wailing from the second gate and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants 
of Mektish. For all the merchants' people are cut down, and all those who hand, handle money are cut off. Um, we're told in James 5, verse 1, um, actually to warn people that are very wealthy. Uh, and the reason is simply they have the ability to have more temptations. And um, it's just a matter of fact that James addresses straight up. It came nothing wrong with being wealthy, nothing wrong with having money. And the Bible says it's the love of money. See, now that's what's the priority. Verse 12, it came to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, the Lord will not do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men will cry out. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, distress, devastation, desolation, day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring disaster upon men. They will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuge. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy, speedy uh, riddance for all those who dwell in the land. Ah, oh, I feel so good and nice and fluffy and warm and cozy and feel so good right now. Reading God's word is such a joy. You know, it's not. But you know what it is? It's the truth. It's simply the truth. So forget all about the feelings or what you think priorities are or should be. We should be interested in one thing, and that is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And um, I, I was hearing it, I don't know where, it's on some Christian radio station, I think it was Syrian, could have been a WEMI or family. But the point that was, was um, um, being made is, um, um, well, Jesus didn't say that. And it, I think it had to do with the sexual immorality or something, and probably on a homosexual issue. And the comment was, well, Jesus never said that. We call them red-letter Christians because the Lord doesn't directly address homosexuality. He does address the issue of adultery and sin. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, she got saved during the process. And um, when she got saved, she, the Lord looked down at her and said, where are your accusers? And they're not here, Lord. What happened during this whole thing? Well, Jesus became a Lord. And then he could say to her, and neither do I condemn thee. He did not condemn her, but he did not condone her sin. What was the rest of the sentence? 
go and sin no more. He wasn't saying adultery was okay. He said adultery is sin. And she was an adulterer until she got busted. And, you know, the Lord couldn't handle the hypocrisy of these other guys. You know, the, the, the big news right now tonight is Matt Laurie. Is that his name? Well, evidently, he's been a sexual predator for years. So I don't know if that's true or not true. But uh, be careful that your sin won't find you out. You know, he's one of the most famous men uh, in, in America. And um, he's been busted for these things. And he lost his job. Well, what do you call that? Justice. Because... Um, um, it's sin, and, and uh, even non-believers are holding, holding him accountable. So what we have in the first, the, the, the first chapter here is twofold. We're talking about a time that's going to come. Nobody likes or wants to talk about judgment or sin. And yet, how can you teach through the book of Zephaniah and not deal with the, the day of the wrath of the Lord and uh, the society that we live in today where sexual promiscuity is off, off, the, off the charts. And, um, you know, he was just a guy that got away with it for a long time. Chapter 2, called to Repentance. So from chapter 2, um, this actually goes down to verse 3. We're still, the Lord, is, it's a separate issue. The Lord is asking them to do what, the woman who got caught in the act of, of adultery did, well, she did repent. And she was grieved in her heart for her lifestyle. So in verse 1, gather yourselves together, yes, together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, before the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord. All you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So here's a plea on the part of the Lord where he he says, seek the Lord and do it meekly. Uh, The Bible says the Lord will not um, turn his back on somebody who has a broken and a contrite Spirit, when you do something wrong and you go, man, that was stupid. Why did I do that? Lord, I am really sorry. And it is, it's a heartfelt, broken-spirited confession that, Lord, I'm just a man or I'm just a woman, and I blew it here, and I know it, and I'm sorry. And I, all I can do right now is stand on your promise that if I confess my sin, you're faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And then your word tells me that I get a clean slate tomorrow morning when I get out of bed and I'm not to remember it anymore. Is that good news or what? But it only happens, what we read here, seek him with humility and brokenness. Not an off-the-collar um, Thing like, um, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't get caught, is what they're saying. And it's not really a, re- a repentance. Now, beginning with verse 4, up to this point we've been dealing with the great tribulation that's to come. We're talking about the sins of Judah in particular and the day of judgment. But now we're going to the surrounding nations. 
verse 4, for Gaza shall be forsaken. We call it today the Gaza Strip. That's where the Hezbollah headquarters is set up. And Ashkelon, desolate. Um, there were five um, uh, Philistine cities. I don't know if I can remember all of them. Ashkelon, Ashdad, Ekron, and Gath. And I'm missing one or something. Uh, but these are cities. Ashdad at noonday at Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Sherathites. And the word of the Lord is against you, O land of Philistines. Philistines, I will destroy you, so there will be no inhabitants. <clears throat> the sea coast shall be pastured with shelters for shepherds and folds and flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there in the house of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. In verses 8 through 11, we have judgment against Moab and Ammon. Now, if you're looking at a map of Israel, uh, these would be both on the east side of the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Um, so I heard the reproach of Moab and revilings of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab is going to be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and, and salt pits. This is a reference down towards the uh, bottom part of the, the Dead Sea where the salt pits are, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. And um, he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. The people shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nation. So in verses 8 through 11, we're looking at those nations, Edom and Ammon. Um, and beginning with verse uh, 12, we're looking at um, uh, Ethiopia um, in the south. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by the sword. And then we go to verse 13 to Assyria in the north, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. And I've mentioned this often, whenever I mention Nineveh, we're talking modern-day Mosul. Um, I watched part of a program on it yesterday. Amazing, after all these years, uh, the same city is being spoken of. As dry as the wilderness, the herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge in the capitals of her pillars. Uh, their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at their threshold. Uh, for he will lay bare their cedar wood. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt secretly, that said in her heart, I'm it. 
and there's none beside me. In other words, they were completely full of themselves. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. So what we basically have, beginning with chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through 15, is the Lord saying, I'm going to bring judgment on these surrounding nations that happen to have surrounded Jerusalem. Now, as we get into uh, chapter 3, um, we get, we're going to make it down to verse um, 8 here. We have a tone that begins to change that goes from judgment to God's overall plan. The Lord is not one bit surprised that they would fail. He's not one bit surprised that um, um, that there was before the foundation of the world was laid. It says that um, the Lord was already part of the plan of salvation. And that was even before the foundation of the world was, our plan of salvation. So he's not surprised by man's sin. Um, he, he allows 6,000 years of time to go by where people can choose. How am I going to live my life? And it manifests itself basically in how we treat other people. And either we're, you know, especially when you, before you're born again, um, total self-centeredness. It's me, myself, and I, Period. And then you get saved and you actually begin to have some compassion for somebody else besides yourself. And you go, this is too good to be true. I mean, I I got a clear conscience. My slate is clean. And when it gets dirty, I can have the get washed in the blood of lamb. And you start sharing this with people you really care about. And, um, you know, I spent most of the day talking to two different families and two extremely different and difficult funerals. And it's just ripping their hearts out. So what do you do with when that happens? Well, you weep with those who weep. And you go through it with them. When they don't know what to say or how to say it. When they can't make it through a sentence without completely breaking down and, and sobbing. That's real life. And then at the same time, um, you hear of somebody who uh, just got blessed with say a big raise or whatever, and, and um, things couldn't be better. And, um, and so the Lord says to us, what, what does the Lord require? But to do justly, but to walk humbly, and do the right thing. So picking it up with verse 3, notice uh, we're still, woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressed city, now we're talking about not just a nation, but Jerusalem in particular. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. And her princesses in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are uh, evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Well, Jerusalem is the epicenter of, of 
all of God's promises where the temple would be built and where people would come and worship, worship the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous. He is in her midst. He will do, he will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust, they know no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitants. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction. It's like getting taken to the woodshed and and you come out and you're thinking, well, I'm not going to do that again. Well, he took him to the woodshed, and that had absolutely no effect on him. The Lord says, well, now, after I've disciplined them, well, now they'll have reverence for me, respect, and now you'll listen so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds, and they didn't change. You know, some... Some people just never learn. And unfortunately, a lot of the fault lies on the church today because they don't want to talk about justice and judgment and God taking you to the woodshed. That's not, again, a very seeker-sensitive style of ministry. Who wants to hear that? I know nothing's going on in my life. I don't need to go to church and have the preacher talk about judgment all the time and getting my act together and getting right with God. Who wants to hear that? Well, we need to hear that. (laughs) And my Bible says that the judgment of God, when it starts, where does it start first? With the church. To whom much is given, much is required. We're the ones who are supposed to know. And yet the church today, again, is being dumbed down so much that... um, there's a lot of great motivational speakers out there. And, um, but what they're not giving you is the whole counsel of God. All of it. The hard stuff, but also the good stuff. Verse 8. Complete change where the judgment of the whole earth. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I'll rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation and my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And so we have here verses that clearly what we have in view is the great tribulation period. And um, it is a period of time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Concerning this period of time, there's never been anything like it before, and there's not going to be anything like it after. It is a seven-year period of time that has a lot of different titles. It's called the Day of Jacob's Trouble. That's important, because a lot of people want to put the church in the seven-year period of time. It's not called the time of the church's trouble. Oh, you Christians are just trying to get away from persecution. No, we're not. We're getting persecuted all over the place. And my Bible says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yeah, good place for an amen. (laughs) 
We don't like to say it, but it's a good place for an amen. Amen. And, but this period of time is God's wrath finally being poured out. He's patient, he's patient, he's patient. We live in an age of grace for the last 2,000 years that says whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you do it with that broken and contrite spirit, he's the one pursuing you, guys. He's the one who's wooing, and we're the one who are kicking against the goads just like Paul. We have our plans, God's got his. Well, if I become a Christian, what if God's got some plans for me? That I'll, uh, I'm sure he's going to call me to, if I give my life to Jesus, he's going to say, go to Africa. And I don't want to go to Africa. So I'm not going to give my life to the Lord. And the Lord is thinking, I want you to give your life to me because I'm looking for a bride. One who will um, hear my word and understand that it's the love of God that brings a person around. It's the goodness of the Lord. And his real motivation that Paul learned after killing Christians, or being a part of it anyway, that all God really wants from us is a personal relationship with him. He wants to talk to you like a father to a son. And when it comes to the Lord, even more intimate between a bride and a groom. So basically, we're being what the Bible calls, and look at my watch here, sanctified. What is sanctified? Well, it's a process that you're, if you've been in the Lord, let's say for 20 years, that hopefully you're a whole lot more mature 20 years now than you were 20 years earlier. I was talking to a friend on the phone today and and we were talking um, um, about a business acquaintance and she was trying to sort of warning me and I said, well, you know, that, that was like 30 years ago and I think maybe over 30 years he's mellowed a little bit and he's probably grown up in the Lord. And my friend said, you know what? You're absolutely right. That that's what's supposed to happen. We're being changed, the Bible says, from glory to glory. And that takes time. We want everything done now because that's our society. That's not the way the Lord does things. He works over years. And, um, um, and when we're a finished product, we're still not finished. <laughs> That's the irony of it. Paul said, when all is said and done, I will never attain perfection. All right, good place to expose a false doctrine and teaching. It's called the manifested sons of God. And basically the bottom line is you finally walk with the Lord so enough, uh, far enough that you become perfected. And your your words have power. You're actually a little God with, within yourself. And... Um, Paul will be the first one to dispute it. Matter of fact, he says just the opposite. He says, at the end of his ministry, he considered himself to be the chiefest of sinners. Now everybody in this room, including myself, should raise their hand and say, oh no, Paul, you're not. (laughs) Because what happens the more you walk with the Lord? You know how good he is and we see how bad we are. And that's where grace comes in, and that's where we learn how to say, thank you, Lord, for your grace. 
I know what I deserved. I know better, so on and so forth. And But, you know, this was the problem that he had in Hebrews, with the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. He says, okay, don't, don't tell me how you got saved anymore. Don't tell me about the elementary principles, the ABCs of the Christian life. But let's go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Oh, what's the first thing that you tell a person who's born again? Well, let's take the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She just got saved. She called him Lord. And what's the first thing he tells her? Don't do that anymore, <laughs> right? Sin no more. And um, so there's things that, that, that go immediately. And um, for me, it was my foul mouth. I don't, I don't know how anybody who really knows Jesus... And I'm not talking about um, my mother's in heaven now. I wonder if I can tell this story and get away with it. <laughs> She's a farm girl, okay? She grew up on a farm. Loves the Lord, godly woman. She, everywhere she went, she would give out God of wonders. And then she would, she would say, you know, my, my, my son is a pastor. And she, what mother doesn't brag on her son, right? And it always embarrassed me, but she would do it anyway. So I'm telling you that part about my mom's story because if she did something wrong, she'd say, oh, and then she'd look around and she'd be all embarrassed because she said it. But, um, you know, she grew up on a farm and that's the way Grandpa Crandall talked most of the time. <laughs> and, but when, here's the thing about what I just said. Some of you are going to go home tonight and the only thing you're going to remember about my Bible study, huh? I hope you'll remember more, more than that. What do you want me to say? Oh, poop. That's not what she said. But, you know, you can't have the Holy Spirit living in you and have profanity be your everyday expression. Boy, I got, I got some relatives that are not born again, and they can't make it through a sentence without a GD or a JC. It's just, it's like breathing to them. They don't even think anything of it. I mean, absolutely nothing. And, you know, it's so uncomfortable for any of the family members that know the Lord. Uh, Because now you're talking about my Savior. You're talking about my Lord. And they don't know any better. And you know what? I don't expect them to do anything other than that. I don't. Because they're not born again yet. They don't have that conviction inside. So what do you do? You cut them a lot of slack and a lot of grace and you take as much of it as you can and you get your witness in as as um, as best you can. I gotta keep going. Uh, so up to verse um, we finished where the Lord is going to bring that judgment upon the whole earth. Verse nine for I will restore to the peoples a pure language for they all will call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. All right? I touched on this as a, a prophecy that was fulfilled by a man named uh, Benny Huda, who when he came back to um, Israel during the Zionist movement, he would not speak in any language except Hebrew. If you came to his house, you better know Hebrew or you weren't talked to. He would not talk to his son except in Hebrew. And because of that and his insistency on 
um, bringing back Hebrew that had not been spoken for 2,500 years. Even in the Lord's time, it wasn't the main language. It was a priestly language, and people could speak it, but it wasn't the main language. But here, we're, this is a prophecy. The pure language is that of speaking Hebrew, and that will be restored, and it is restored today. When we went to Israel, and if you, they weren't speaking English, and then they were speaking in, in the Hebrew tongue. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, by worshipers, the daughters of my despised ones shall bring my offering. And that day you shall not be ashamed for all your deeds in which you transgressed against me. For then I will take you away from your midst, excuse me, your midst, for those who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave you in your midst, a meek and a humble people. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord, and the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flock and lie down. And no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughters of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgment. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. No more pain, no more sorrow. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hand be weakened. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's an interesting verse right there. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you. To whom its reproach is a burden, Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out, and I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they put, where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you, and I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth, when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. And so in Zephaniah, it is, let's go through it quickly and review. We have two things going on. Um, all judgment, chapters 1, 3 through 8. And from verses, chapter 3, 9 through 20, we have the salvation and the day of the Lord. Now, in the book of Haggai, it's only two chapters long. It is one of the, the shortest books of all the books in the Old Testament. And here, Haggai was a prophet to the restored remnant who returned to Jerusalem after the 70 years in captivity. So let's do a switch in our mind here where we're at. In the book of Haggai, uh, it's sort of um, the, the, the time frame is he's in, a, in the form of encouraging people 
to come back to a city that's been completely devastated by Nebuchadnezzar. And in the study of uh, Israel, we'll note how important it is to, to consider the historical books along with the prophetic books. There is a little cluster of books that belong together, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And that's for the historical records. Haggai, which we're studying here, Zechariah, and Malachi deal more with the prophetic. So one is historic primarily, and Haggai, the one we're about to study, Zechariah and Malachi, they are more of on the prophetic edge. We just did a study on Sunday on Zechariah, and we showed you the, um, the lampstands. And uh, we didn't know who they were until we got to Revelation 11. What well, was a prophecy? A very significant prophecy that, that dealt with the, with the anointing of the two witnesses for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Also, the book of Daniel should be studied first. I say this all the time. You cannot understand Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. These supplementary minor prophets, like the one we're going to study right now, is Daniel told them that they were going to go into captivity. Did that happen? Yes. And when it was time to go home, he was reading Jeremiah, and he says, it's time to go home. Well, in the book of um, Nehemiah, it's more of a historical aspect because now they can go home, but nobody wants to leave Babylon. They're all settled in, and Jerusalem's just a waste dump. Who wants to go there? And it's really, it bums Nehemiah out. So the book of Daniel should be studied first. These books belong together, and they constitute a unit. So Haggai and Zechariah prophesied during the same period Yet their approach was altogether different. They both challenged and encouraged the returned remnant to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And then they rose up Zerubbabel, He's a main player here. And they began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. I'm going to have you turn to Ezra um, so that we can see both Zechariah and Haggai are mentioned in this historical book of Ezra as the two prophets who encouraged the people to rebuild the temple and also abide uh, them in it. So with that, we're going to go to two places. Um, let's go, first of all, to, oh, let's go to Ezra. Now, Ezra, you got to go back. It's right before the book of Job in that section, and it's right after the book of um, Second Chronicles, Ezra. So I'm going to give you a moment to get there. And I want you to see... Here, um, well, if we're just reading verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, so they're put together. If you go to chapter 6, picking it up, oh, in verse um, 14, 
we read, So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the, um, the son of Ido. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Now again, this decree was given, this ties in the book of Nehemiah, because that's who gave the decree, which is a major, how much time I got here, it's a major part of the Bible because it's the beginning point that tells us when to start counting the 69 weeks until the Messiah would come. Or that 177,880 days. It had to have a beginning point. It says when you get the decree, well that decree came from Artaxerxes and that's when Nehemiah was the cupbearer. So again, all this has to uh, come together and flow together, but Daniel primarily is uh, the one that gives us the timing of the first coming of the Lord himself. And let's, I want to be able to finish it, so let's jump into it. Let's go back to um, Haggai. Uh, Versus the exhortation here, um, we read in verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month on the first day, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judea, and of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, it is time for yourself. No, it's, this is in a question form. Well, then is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lies in ruins? And so basically he's challenging them. They were doing their own thing and the things of the Lord were being put on the shelf. So now we have the challenge. Uh, you have, he says, consider your ways. You have sown much and you've brought in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earn wages to put it into a bag with holes. You ever heard of the the expression, well, I got paid, but I had holes in my pocket. All these sayings, where do you think they come from? (laughs) Well, this is where they come from. So, The exhortation is priorities. Their priority was living for themselves. And the prophet says, why don't you guys think about what's really important here? Consider your ways. What's going to last and what's going to perish? 1 Corinthians 13 says that we can build with stones and precious uh, jewelry that will endure or we can build with wood, hand, stubble. And then he goes on to say, one day it's all going to be brought out into the open and it's going to be judged. And all the stuff that we did for ourselves, the wood, hay, and stubble, will be burned. Gone. Never to be seen again. And, um, I mean, when you die, 
What do you take with you? Answer, nada. (laughs) You know, you can't take it with you. But the old saying is, you can send it ahead. Where does the Bible say we're to store up our treasures? In heaven. Well, how do you do that? By considering your ways. And here, the challenge is being given. I can understand um, their, their frustration. They come back to a city that's completely wiped out. The temple is, is in ruins, but he's encouraging them to say, come on, let's go for it, guys, and let's, let's put the Lord first and get back on track. All right, verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may uh, take pleasure in it and and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed come to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, it's in ruins. While every one of you runs to your own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I have called for a drought on the land and the mountains and the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men, livestock, and on all labors of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, all right, we talked about him, and Joshua, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had said him, and the people feared in the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit and all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, and on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the sixth year of King Darius. And now we have the people uh, at work on the job. And let's just read the uh, first, uh, we're going to go to Ezra 3 again, but I want to read the first couple of verses here. Now in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shetiel, the governor of Judea, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? So now we're asking a question. How many old-timers here? How many of you remember what it looked like? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Hold your finger there and turn with me to back to Ezra chapter 3. And we'll actually have it described in greater detail. Chapter 3 of Ezra verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals, 
to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his mercy endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now this is after Solomon's temple was destroyed, after they've been in captivity. They come back, nobody's doing nothing. This is where the book of Nehemiah comes in. He hears this, he's bummed out. And we have the decree given to go back and rebuild it. And now it's done. The foundation is done. But, verse 12, many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's house who were old men, who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shouts of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Are you following what's happening here? The old-timers remember the glory of Solomon's temple. Let's go back and we'll finish our study tonight. So when we read in Haggai, in verse 3, the question he asks, all right, old-timers, raise your hand. And um, he says, I want to know who is around and how does this compare? I know what you're thinking, that this is nothing. This foundation is nothing compared to what Solomon's temple. The young guys didn't care. They were praising the Lord, shouting hallelujah. And the old men were crying, saying, man, this is, we're not talking apples and apples here at all. Now, Let's uh, read verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I uh, covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. All right, we're touching on Sunday's text right here. And that's all I'm going to tell you for now. (laughs) The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Verses 10 through 14 is the disobedient of the remnant. On the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edges he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. 
Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will he be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer them is unclean. The obedience now of the remnant. And this is where actually we we finish out the chapter. And now carefully consider from this day forward, um, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, uh, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vats to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight, with mildew, with hail, and all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day of the foundation, that the Lord's temple was laid. Consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? Question. And yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day forward, I will bless you. Now he's talking about those who have regathered, and um, they're involved with the work. And he ends uh, the book of Haggai with the future destruction of those nations. And he's talking about, well, let me read it and we'll close. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the, of the month, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and say, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of uh, Sheatiel, says the Lord, and will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. This guy, um, his lineage actually goes um, through and right down to the Lord himself. We made it through Zephaniah and Haggai, and the main point that we'll leave you with tonight, double prophecy. Judgment is absolutely necessary when there's sin involved, and the Lord will bring about justice, hoping for repentance. And then... The other part of it is uh, because God had to judge, he wanted to get them back into a rebuilding mode. He wanted their spirits to be restored, not destroyed, but restored. So in the woodshed for 70 years, finally get permission to come home. Nobody feels like working. And so what does the Lord use? He uses Haggai. And Zerubbabel, to do what? 
to consider your ways, consider your priorities, what's really important. Building the house of the Lord, it would be like for us saying, uh, we're being built as spiritual stones, one stone upon another. And so I'll close with this. What are we first and foremost above everything else? I've been saying it a lot. We are what? We are Christians first. And then are we? Well, what? fill in the blank. But we seek first the kingdom, and that's what these guys were doing here. What had happened during the discipline is when they came back, they didn't have a heart for it. They were discouraged. Isn't that human nature? Sure is. I'd be discouraged. Come back and look at that. I'm one of these old timers, and I'm coming back and looking at this foundation. And when I remember the glory of Solomon's temple, and they're building this thing. So you got all these mixed emotions going on, but what does the Lord say? Just get to work. Take it a day at a time. Make your priorities your priorities, little by little. And in the process, um, the Lord is going to accomplish what, what he, has, uh, he has put us out there for. So let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word tonight as we were able to get through Zephaniah and Haggai. And the Lord, as, as we consider the differences in the books, um, the one thing they have in common is that there is another judgment that's going to come. And as we see these double prophecies here, that um, you're not going to hold people not accountable that have rejected your own son that you sent into this world. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and plot this foolish, vain thing that they think they can fight against their creator? And so we see this scattered throughout the scriptures, Lord. Might we be exhorted uh, through the study tonight to just uh, keep the main thing the main thing and... um, allow you to be first in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.